You are now listening to the September 23rd broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have the Screwtape Letters, Sermon, and Equipping the Saints. First, let's begin with the Screwtape Letters. everyone, I'm Terry, the host of the Screw Tape Letters. We have been sharing stories regarding our spiritual warfare with the devil, drawing from C.S. Lewis's book, The Screw Tape Letters. Please note that the main character in this book is a devil and refers to believers in Jesus as patients and calls Christ the enemy. To explain why I chose this particular book by C.S. Lewis, it might make sense to share a bit about my past. Looking back, my life has been divided into two distinct phases. The first phase might be called the time in a greenhouse. I was surrounded by Christian family members and lots of church activities. Then I got married, which marks the beginning of the second phase. My husband and others from his side of the family were all non-Christians. I often felt alone and felt like running barefoot through an unknown land. At the same time, this is when I became awakened to the spiritual side of my life as a Christian. In retrospect, during the greenhouse phase of my life, I knew the Bible only intellectually. I did not relate much at the personal level with our Lord Jesus, who is the Word and the Truth. Naturally, I did not understand the dynamics of spiritual warfare, and I confused the peace and tranquility that came from the Lord as boredom. Clearly, at that time, I lacked maturity as a Christian. The barefoot phase began with my marriage, which coincided with my new family's move to the United States. The living conditions and the people around me changed. It was a time when I struggled with pain and loneliness. It often felt as if I was walking barefoot on hot asphalt. It was during that time I came across the book, The Screwtape Letters. I cannot forget, to this day, the astonishment, comfort, and laughter I found in this book. Despite the author from a different time, nationality, and gender, it was amazing how he was able to articulate so precisely all the things I was going through, as if he had observed and studied what I was going through. Then I realized that I was not the only one experiencing such struggles. The authors and all the believers who had come and gone, have also experienced the struggles. That realization gave me a sense of connection and solidarity, and it gave me great comfort. There were parts where it felt like the author had captured and described me as if he had seen me through a camera. I couldn't help but laugh. While reading the book, the author became my friend, someone who would listen to me and understand my overflowing emotions. It was a special gift from the Lord during that time of my life. I am hoping that, by sharing this book with all the listeners, I might convey even a fraction of the awe and comfort I felt back then. Thus far, it has been a wonderful journey together, sharing the contents of this wonderful book by C.S. Lewis. And today, we have come to the last letter. In the 16th and final letter, what kind of strategy is Screwtape plotting? Here is an excerpt from the beginning of the 16th letter. You mentioned casually in your last letter that the patient has continued to attend one church and one only since he was converted and that he is not wholly pleased with it. May I ask you what you are about? Why have I no report on the causes of his fidelity to the parish church? 
do you realize that unless it is due to indifference, it is a very bad thing? Surely you know that if a man can't be cured of church-going, the next best thing is to send him all over the neighborhood looking for the church that suits him until he becomes a taster or connoisseur of churches. Screwtape is pressing wormwood and he explains why. The first reason is that devils should always target sub-organizations in a church like cell groups or local groups. These sub-organizations are not a gathering of people based on personal preferences, but often based on geographical locations. Individuals come from diverse social background, values, tastes, and personalities, all of which represent exactly the types of divide the enemy desires to break and overcome. As a side note, here the word enemy is used from the devil's perspective and it refers to Christ. So, it should be the duty of devils to prevent union of people of different backgrounds and create division and separation within these sub-organizations. We see here from the points raised by Screwtape how devils try to break us apart, while Christ takes delight in bringing us together. The second reason is that if humans keep searching for the right church according to their own preferences, they might become the critics of various church forms and end up moving away from the enemy. In contrast, the type of Christian's enemy's desires would always be willing to learn while rejecting falsehood and useless things. This type of Christian might adopt a critical stance on certain issues, but would not reject anything that can be beneficial to them. Whether they hear a sermon or read a book, they remain humble and accept the current situation in their church. These people receive and enjoy the grace given by Christ, and they would share it, regardless of the circumstances. Therefore, the devil's goal is to prevent patients from becoming this type of Christian from the very beginning by making them wander across various churches. If we look at the characteristics of people who go to different churches, there seem to be three types. The first type harbors the illusion that an ideal church must exist somewhere. These individuals are like children on a journey searching for an elusive bluebird. According to Screwtape, they are wandering souls without direction as if sleepwalking. They constantly compare their own church to other churches. They might even come across as if they are suffering from an inferiority complex. Nowadays with the internet, they can listen to the sermons from churches anywhere in the world from the comfort of their own home. Making comparisons seems to have intensified. By rendering judgment on their church, these people have become what Screwtape describes as the church discriminator or discriminator of sermons. The second type would leave their church because they are annoyed by some people in the church. Although they might not have had any major conflicts, they feel uncomfortable whenever they see certain individuals. They feel that those people behave rudely or appear uninterested. One may hear them use expressions like, This church lacks love, or this church is too cold. In the end, to avoid seeing those certain people, they make the decision to move to a different church. The third type refers to those that leave their church after encountering some disappointing behaviors of pastors or church leaders. These individuals usually have some strong standards about how things should be in a church. They are able to articulate clearly how a pastor or church leader is falling short of their expectations. For these individuals, the slightest deviation from their established standard set off an alarm bell in their heads. So, given their high standards, 
they themselves experience some suffering. In general, these individuals make noise when they see someone else falling short, but they remain silent when they themselves fall short. We might say they are like a faulty thermometer that only shows temperature below a certain level and fails to catch temperatures above it. They are unaware of their own offensive behaviors but are quick to notice the subpar behaviors in others. While they try to tolerate subpar behavior by others, they do that not out of love. These individuals often keep score in their heads. When the score goes over a certain point they have set for themselves, that calls for action. What do they do? They leave the church because they now have justification for doing so. They walk away triumphantly as if pursuing their own path. Just by looking at these three types, we see that these individuals are driven by their own self-righteousness. If by any chance we feel that the church we belong to deviates from the ideal church we envision, we should realize that we ourselves are also not the ideal believers the church desires. Remember that Jesus took up the cross for us when we were still sinners. Remember His grace. Do you have someone in your church whom you find uncomfortable to be with and want to avoid? If yes, you should consider the possibility that the aspects that bother you about that person might also exist in yourself. It is entirely possible that your discomfort is arising from seeing some aspects of yourself in that person that stem from your own sinful nature that you do not want to confront. If we are evaluating other people or churches we belong by imposing on our own set of standards, remember this. We do not have the authority to do so. Judgment is solely for God. Do not confuse discernment with judgment. How can we tell the difference? By the presence or absence of prayers. Consider the following passage from Matthew chapter 12, verses 1-8. through 8. It involves Jesus, his disciples, and the Pharisee who imposed their judgment against the disciples. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. He answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do so, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Please remember that Jesus Christ is the Lord of the Sabbath. Do not act as a master, but remain in the position of a servant. God is the one who purchased the church with his own blood. He has called us to be worshiper in such a church. May we all become faithful servants, preventing divisions within church. May we all be working toward unity, serving only God.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Cavalry Phoenix in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is, I Surrender All. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark. We're going back to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 19, verse 8. And Paul entered the synagogue and for three months boldly spoke, reasoning and persuading them that is uh, Jews and Gentiles in that synagogue, about the kingdom of God, verse 9. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So we're told that for three months, Paul was reasoning and persuading. The word reasoning is the word dialegomai. Dialegomai, what does that sound like? Dialoguing, yes. So uh, Paul did more than just stand up front and talk and everybody listen. There was this dialogue going on. Uh, Paul would uh, respond to their challenges. Paul would answer their questions. So he was dialoguing, reasoning with them. And we're also told that he, it says he was persuading them. And that word means to convince by argument. This means that you have a systematic approach to something and you're able to present your argument clearly and people were being convinced and it made sense to them. Well, of course, those who were the diehards in the synagogue, 
the unbelieving Jews that were anti-gospel, anti-Jesus, they didn't like this. And so uh, they started this uh, campaign against Paul and the believers called the disciples here and against the way. Now, remember that the way was the earliest name that the church was known uh, in the uh, first century. The church is called the way. Unbelievers referred to Christians as the way. Tell me why. Because they heard Christians constantly talking about Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life. They say, there's no other way, only Jesus. So... Luke says that these unbelieving Jews became stubborn and continued in unbelief, and then they started uh, speaking evil of the way before the congregation. Paul said, you know, this is useless. I'm wasting my time here. Uh, The Lord's uh, pulled as much fruit as there is possible here in the synagogue. But it says that they became stubborn. The, The word actually is sclerosis. This hardening of the arteries. They hardened their hearts, became hard-hearted. And once you harden your heart, it's like God does everything he can possibly do to get a person tenderized, ready to hear the gospel. But then if you begin, person begins hardening their hearts, God will eventually say, okay, be what you want. And this is what was happening to them over those months. So... Paul moved in with the other believers to the hall of Tyrannus, and there he reasoned daily. Now let's look at verses 11 through 20. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. (laughs) Whoa! Signs and wonders uh, were accomplished by the apostles. These are amazing signs and wonders. Now, does God do that today? I'm not going to say he doesn't, but uh, this is definitely... A, an apostolic wonder for sure. Why signs and wonders? I got to thinking about that. Why signs and wonders in the ministry of Jesus and in the ministry of the apostles? I thought of a couple of things. One, the first one was it just shows God's great compassion. People are sick. People are hurting. People are dying. And so by, by healing, miracles of healing and, and miracles of raising the dead and all It shows the heart of God, his compassion. Jesus' ministry was a ministry of healing, wasn't it? It also uh, illustrates, science and wonders are used by God to illustrate the truth. When Jesus would teach, he might like teach about the blindness of the Pharisees or Sadducees or something like that, and then he turned around and healed someone who was blind. Like, see, you're blind, you can't see, but, but I'm able to open the blind eyes. I'm the one who has that ability. You should see me. And so the apostles as well, they would teach, and then God would perform um, signs and wonders that would validate their teaching. But another reason for signs and wonders, I believe, is for identification. I mean, how do we know that this is of God? So Jesus, his signs and wonders, his work spoke for him. 
The Apostle Paul says, For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. And he says, In the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit. So uh, that was in Romans 15. So Paul, he says, one of the ways you know and identify myself as a true apostle is, hey, what the Holy Spirit has done through me and the power of these signs and wonders. Now there's background here that really helps us to appreciate more what is going to happen in this incident. People in the ancient world believed that power could be magically transmitted through objects. So the idea that this handkerchief or this apron from Paul could touch somebody else and, and heal them, that was well known. They believed that magically that kind of stuff happened. So God was speaking their language at this point, okay? They could understand this. So whatever Paul had was strong, the city of Ephesus was known for being a center for the practice of magic and the occult. In fact, Ephesus was known for producing little rolls of like uh, papyrus with magical spells written on them. They were called Ephesia Grammata, Ephesian writings. And so you'd see them around the world, this little roll, you know, and you open it up and here's a secret uh, magic spell coming from Ephesus. Many exorcists and magicians uh, owned books of secret spells. And also there would be secret names in the book that if you knew the name, that gave you power, more power, depending on how great the name might be. I'll explain to that a little more. It was very common in the ancient world to have magicians and exorcists traveling from city to city. That was just something that happened. A lot of them in Ephesus, though, because, like I said, this just seemed to be the thing, magic and magic arts being practiced there. Many of these uh, magicians and exorcists were trained in Egypt, which was known for practicing the dark arts. Um, Verses 13 and 14. So then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you. They had this formula for how they they cast demons out. I adjure you by the name of Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Um, Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. Well, what do we know about these guys? Well, they were Jewish exorcists, uh, traveled from city to city. They were known as the sons of Sceva. Sons doesn't mean they were seven brothers. The idea of sons can refer to being a disciple of somebody or a, a follower, an apprentice. So Sceva, we're told, was a Jewish high priest I doubt that very much. That is very suspect because we don't know of any Jewish high priest ever named Sceva, right? But to have a title in the ancient world, if you were a magician or exorcist and you could have the title high priest or have somehow even the the relation to a high priest, that gave you more power and 
instant acceptance in the community. It's like, whoa, this guy's a high priest. So um, Jewish exorcists did um, attempt to cast out demons. So before we move on, here's a little back-back story. In the ancient world, it was believed that you could have power over demons by knowing their name. If you could know the name of an evil spirit, speaking the name then would would take the power away from that evil spirit. And so pagan exorcists would use names of more authoritative spirits or greater gods to make the evil spirit say its name. And then the evil spirit would have to leave. I mean, this is what they were thinking. I'm not saying that's right. It's not right. This sheds some light on what the Pharisees and scribes accused Jesus of doing. In Matthew 7.22, you don't have to look there, you'll remember, the Pharisees said Jesus cast out demons by the prince of demons. So they're saying, well, the way Jesus, they're saying, is just another Jewish exorcist, and the way he's doing it is he just knows, he knows the highest prince of demons, and so he uses that prince who then confronts the demon in the person, and they have to say their name, and then they are exorcised. They have to leave. In Mark 3, 22, the teachers of the religious law says, he's possessed by Satan, the prince of demons, That's where he gets the power to cast out demons. So they go even farther and say, oh no, he's not just using a demon, he's possessed by Satan. That's why he can do this. Right after that, Jesus says, let me tell you what the impardonable sin is. And it's grieving the Holy Spirit like you have done and speaking against the Holy Spirit. So they said, well, Jesus is possessed by Satan. That's why he can cast out these demons. And Jesus goes into that logical argument, well, can Satan cast out Satan? You know, a country divided against itself can't stand, you know, all of that. Because Jesus' exorcisms were so simple and he had no reason for ritual and he didn't have to call on greater names or greater gods, they figured that he must just be doing this by some super powerful demon or the prince of them all. In addition to calling upon demons, greater demons to cast out lesser demons, they would call upon uh, the names of holy angels, the Jewish. In addition, they'd say, and we adjure you in the name of Michael, the archangel, and Gabriel, and other angels they would name. You know, this is a long, long, drawn-out thing. But Jesus... And now his followers had no need for such rituals. Remember when the 72 disciples came back from their missionary journey? They came back rejoicing. And it says they joyfully reported to Jesus, Lord, even the demons obey us when we use your name. So let's say there is a name that needs to be used. But it's the name above all name, amen? Because he's Lord, because he has victory over all of these demonic... I mean, they're created, and he created them all anyway. So when these seven men saw that what Paul was doing by the name of Jesus, they were astounded. Immediately, all they saw was dollar signs. They wanted to cash in on this name. Well, the result uh, is kind of funny. Verse 13 
Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of Jesus, Lord Jesus, over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you, that's that, you know, magical formula, I adjure you by the name of Jesus whom Paul proclaims, verse 15, but the evil spirits answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? Can you imagine? I mean, I can't make the demon voice, but can you imagine? But who are you? It was insulting and it was terrifying. And the opposite of what would happen when the disciples cast out a demon or Jesus cast out a demon happened to them. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, overpowered them, so they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and Fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was what? Extolled. Jesus' name became famous. Also, many of those who are now believers, so these are these people over the, the last months, they came confessing and divulging their practices. In other words, they were going and they were speaking the name. And they divulged them. In other words, they revealed everything. There's no power in this. Understand that. But they were confessing their sins in the sight of all. This verse, uh, it's a, it goes on to say, verse 19, and a number of those who practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. We hear about book burning, and we think, oh, censorship. No, this wasn't censorship at all. This was conviction. This is true conviction. What we have, this is wrong. And they counted the value of them and they found it to come to how many pieces of silver, gang? 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. You say it wasn't just the cost of the book that was burned. It was also the cost of the information in the book that was lost. So if you were, I'm sure other exorcists were saved. I'm sure other people who had a great many magic books, in there were all these secret formulas and spells and all of this that you could make a lot of money off of if you wanted. All of that was burned, and it, a fortune went up in flames. It was saying, all my future revenues that would come out of what I have in that book I throw it away, I burn it. It means nothing to me. And you know how much 50,000 pieces of silver would be worth? I did some research in this. I totally nerded out on this. But, but for one person in their economy, 50,000 pieces of silver would equal 270 years of salary. It's a lot of money that went up in flames. And in today's dollars... Let's say the average income would be $54,000 a year. So in today's wages, it would be a value of $14,530,000 or 550000 But you know, they didn't care. It was all to Jesus, right? They're surrendering all to Jesus. I don't want this. Most likely, none of you are practicing magic arts. I don't know. 
But are there things you own that you shouldn't have anymore? Apostle Paul taught them to get rid of anything that didn't exalt the name of Jesus. And I think sometimes as believers or new believers, we're not aware of things that might be displeasing to the Lord. I want to say at the beginning, I am not your Holy Spirit, all right? This is between you and the Lord, but I I just hope the Lord speaks through me and the word you hear would be received in your heart if it's indeed a word from Christ. Paul said, get rid of all these things that are abominations to God. And these people didn't say, well, all right, we're saved. I'm still going to go to the fortune teller. Believers read their horoscope. Who cares what cusp of the moon you were born? You really think the stars proclaim our destiny? The one who made the stars are reading the Psalms. You know, you created the stars. Who are we, O oh Lord? That you even be mindful of us. It's our creator, the one who created these stars, who controls our life. But you know, it's occultic, and it gives Satan a foothold in your life if you practice this kind of stuff. I always say when people say, what sign are you? I say, the cross. (laughs) Oh, and it's an open door to explain things, you know. They didn't consult with the dead anymore. They didn't want any occultic things hanging in their homes. They didn't want to have anything that could be attached to Satan's kingdom. The church of Ephesus was dearly beloved by God, dearly beloved by the Apostle Paul. And look, it begins with a confession and a cleansing of anything that might have a, a connection with evil or with Satan or with darkness or the occult or magic. Satan can get a foothold in our lives if we hang on to things that carry his label. You know what I'm saying? These people were free and they wanted to get rid of anything that might have any connection with the occult or false gods. What about us? I know I'm talking to mature Christians for the most part, but still, what about books on astrology? Ouija boards. Hey, Mark, was it early this month? Um, it was reported 28 college women went to the hospital for extreme fear and anxiety because these 28 women had been playing with Ouija board. I've had, through the years, so many people who have been oppressed by Satan because they've messed around with that stuff and they really have to renounce it in Jesus' name. Of course, you have to get rid of it. Otherwise, you've planted Satan's flag in your house and it's like, I don't want the devil to mess with me. Well, get it out of your house because he has a reason to be there. If that's in your possession. Novels about spirit beings or beings that transform. Music that you now know offends the Holy Spirit. You need to go through your iTunes and maybe get rid of some of this stuff. Series you watch on TV. Maybe you you get those out of your Netflix. Crystals, new age stuff. There's nothing wrong with a crystal of itself. We make rings out of these crystals, semi-precious stones and all. But when you think there's power connected to them, it's magic. It's just like these people in Ephesus. Get rid of that stuff. Don't wear that stuff. Throw it away. 
Because, well, it only is a rock to me. Okay, it could be, but to someone else who's looking at it, they're thinking, no, that means something else. Again, you know, I can get pretty strong on this kind of stuff because I've seen so much over the years. It's not because I'm all judgmental. It's just, I care. And here we are in the Southwest, you guys. And, and a lot of us, there's those Cocopelli images. That's, they're demons. You understand that? I'm not anti-cultural. I, I believe museums exist to display culture, and if people groups want to keep their culture and do that, that's fine. But you have to understand, the Hopi dancers, I know where there's a huge collection of these. They are demons. You understand that. And if you have those, you got the dream catchers, you got all this stuff that is new age, it's occultic, but you have these kinds of things, you've got to get rid of them, okay? Because you're flying Satan's flag in your house. One time, I probably told you this, there was a Native American mission here in Phoenix asked me to, to come over. This is the call you always want to get. You know, hey, we have a demon-possessed girl here. Would you come over and help? So I couldn't say, uh, somebody else go do this. I don't like messing with this stuff. It's not my, my thing. But, uh, of course, I'll go over. And so I started praying, and nothing was happening. It just wasn't going right. And I went in the lobby, and I saw this great big glass display. Great big, like you put trophy cases in a school. It was full of Native American artifacts, some of the dolls, the kachinas. There were baskets woven. Some baskets are woven in a certain way that they, they are occultic. Uh, the, the weave and the design is not, not all. I don't mean it that way. But they have some of this kind of stuff. I went back in and said, you guys have got to get rid of all of that kind of stuff because you know what? Nothing's going to happen here as long as Satan's stuff is in your lobby. Get it out. So they got it out, and then she was released, and the Lord delivered her, which is a great praise. There's some kind of an evil attachment to some of these things. I was talking with a friend of 28 years. I'd like Dr. Jose Laura. Jose, come on up here. I want to share something we were talking about. And um, I think that's it. The mic is way over there. We've known each other a long time. We were laughing about how we met the very first time. I was in a whole lot of pain. And here's this young guy saying he could help me out. And I trusted him. I didn't know him. You know, from Adam. I still don't know him. <laughs> Trying to figure that out for a long time. But uh, you came to Calvary. How old were you in the Lord when, when you came? Come on over here. When this I way. came to Calvary, it was in 1995. So, so about 31 years old. And you had been a believer for how One long? One year. About a year old. One so year. you came to Calvary. Mm-hmm. And I, was I talking about something like this? Or, no, you were having nightmares? I was. So I was having nightmares for about several weeks, really bad ones. And we were just dedicated ourselves, uh, our lives to the Lord, seriously. Yeah. And it's like something's happening. And we were talking and like, are you in sin? I'm like, no, no, I'm not <laughs> in sin. Uh, what do you got going on? And I, everything's fine. And then you came over our house and then let's take a look at the house. And I had books from school, new age stuff. Uh, different religious stuff, uh, gifts that people had given us, 
uh, that we had put on the walls everywhere, and it was all kind of like demonic oppression. Mm-hmm. And when you mentioned that to us, I was like, yeah, right. I, I don't know if it's true or not, <laughs> but I'm like, okay, I'm going to trust you. I've only known you for a year, but I'm going <laughs> to trust you. And then it says, we got to get rid of it. We got to burn it. I'm like, burn it. I'm like, you know how much money this is that people are giving me? And, so, and you had a big old barrel in your backyard. And we took it to the backyard. And I was like hurting, seeing all my books going in there. And you put all the books in the barrel. And we lit it on fire. It made a weird noise. Well, it almost like exploded. Well, what I remember this, and we were talking... He had these masks. I don't know what kind of wood they were made, but you'd been given, and they come from Africa. Yeah, and they were gifts from people, from and, doctors from all over the country, gave me and, gifts. Them. And when oh, you we threw those in, <laughs> they ignited like, they just exploded in flames. Yes. And I remember, talking to Leslie as well, we remember that they exploded in flames. We heard a scream. And it was weird. It was very it was weird, weird for me. And it was like we saw something go up. You know me long enough that I'm not, you know, you say, yeah, but you're getting older. <laughs> we barely remember this. You're so old now. <laughs> but, but after that, how was your sleep? I haven't had a nightmare since. It was miraculously. Uh, it had to, we have to live that to believe that. And we have had, we had opened our home for the enemy to have a foothold in our home, basically what happened. Mm -hmm. And it was suppressing us from growing, from serving, and not just attacking me. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's been gone. So it does happen. (laughs) Thanks, Jose. I appreciate you. Love you. Thank you. It's for real. I was thinking about this and... uh, Gee, there's something I've had, you guys, and I'll tell you, I didn't know if I would or not. There's something that I've had, a piece of art, actually a sculpture, and throughout the years I thought, oh, it's just a Greek, and it's a bust of of a Greek figure, and then I'm studying this, the Holy Spirit says, go look at that, it's part of a lamp, it's been in my office here for 25 years. And the Holy Spirit was said, uh, go and Google a picture of the god Apollo. No, it can't be Apollo. So I Googled another image, trying to see, is there any way I could get out of that being Apollo? <laughs> Can I keep this, please? Guys, it, it's whoops, hard for me. I don't want to give, I I mean, I appreciate art. It's beautiful. I don't want to get rid of it. And I'm struggling with that. And I'm thinking, you're going to be teaching it, dude. But maybe I can just compromise here. And in my quiet time, in my time with the Lord, a couple of nights ago, I was writing and telling the Lord, Lord, I, I'm, I'm, I'm ashamed, but I, I'm struggling with doing what is right. I know it's right, but I don't want to do it. I feel bad about it, but there's no shame with God. You know, he knows. And, but this is what the Lord showed me, these scriptures where I was reading, search my heart, make me clean. This 
was from Psalm 83. You alone are the most high supreme over all the earth. Then these verses, teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Show me the path where I should walk. O Lord, point out the right road for me to follow. Lead me by your truth and teach me. You see what the Lord is doing, speaking to me? He leads the humble in what is right, teaching them his way. So I'm going, Lord, thank you for speaking to me. Thank you so much for showing me the right thing. Now you've leading me in the path. And if I'm humble, I'll do what is right. I'm not saying I'm humble. That's not what I mean. But if I'm teachable, I'll do what is right. The scripture I believe God's given me for our church is in Psalm 85, verse 6, which says, will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? And I don't think revival can happen as long as we're holding on to things that don't please the Lord, practices, places. You got the idea, right? We gotta let it go. Gotta turn from stuff. Jesus, 
following program is called Equipping the Saints. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundstedt, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. And in the air, they're glorified forever and ever. And then those who are alive and remain, notice what he says, alive and remain, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord. The Lord in this coming is not coming to earth and planting his feet. He is coming to the clouds and we are being grasped up and bodies are being resurrected and going up and meeting those souls. And if we haven't died, we're being glorified or be changed, 1 Corinthians 15. And we meet them and the Lord in the air. In the air. And that word, grabbed up or whatever, let's see what it says here. Caught up together, it's the Greek word harpazo, which means to be forcibly grabbed. It could even be translated in a negative sense, kidnapped. The Lord is going to grab us out of here. Isn't that great? And, you know, in the Latin translation, we get the word raptura. That's where we get our word rapture. So you might say to one of those people that deny the truth of the word of God, well, I believe in rapture. He goes, well, rapture is not in the Bible. Well, no, the word isn't. But the word harpazo is, which is then translated in Latin, raptura, and that's where we get our term rapture. So then we have this tremendous event where those who have passed away are with Christ, and he comes, and they will be raised first, glorified with their resurrection bodies, and we who are alive and remain, 1 Corinthians 15, will be changed, glorified, and we will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. We will be with him forever. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. That's our gathering together to him. And they were looking forward to it because that event assured they were not going to go through the wrath to come. That event assured that God would not pour out his wrath on his people he would pour out his wrath on those who have rejected him. So we have that. And even in John 14, look at John 14. The Lord Jesus relays this also. It's all throughout Scripture. When people say it isn't there, they're just lying. They're lying. Now, they may be believers, but they are deceived and they are lying. And when someone teaches you something that's wrong, you need to stay away from those teachers. And that's why I can't go near Reformed theology. John chapter 14. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many dwelling places. That's up in heaven. Jesus is saying, hey, you know, I'm going away. Don't be troubled. He says here, if I were not so, I would not have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. Where's that place? In heaven, right? Not on earth, but in heaven. He says, prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. 
and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. He's going to come, we're going to be gathered up to him, and he's going to take us to the place that he has prepared. That's what this is talking about. That's what these Thessalonians understood and knew. And he says, with regard to the coming of our Lord and his gathering of us together. That's the rapture. That's what he's talking about. And that delivers us ultimately from the wrath to come. It's not speaking of the second coming where Christ comes and plants his feet on earth, stays, defeats his enemies, and then goes into his millennial kingdom. We are going to be delivered from the wrath to come at a place where he is prepared for us. And that's encouraging, especially if you're suffering greatly. We have not suffered greatly, but they were suffering greatly. Chapter 1, we saw that. And they were waiting for Jesus who delivers them from the wrath to come, First Thessalonians 1.10. And they knew, First Thessalonians 5.9, that God had not destined them for wrath, but salvation. But yet, as we're going to see, someone was coming along and saying, the day of the Lord has come, you're in it. Well, what's the logical conclusion of that? Then you missed our gathering to him. That's what it is. And he's going to say, hey, then the way this works is that he's going to say, well, here it couldn't have happened because these things have to happen first. And he's going to explain about that. So people say, oh, he's talking about the second coming and the Antichrist. He's explaining about how that's not here yet. That's what he's explaining, which means you didn't miss the gathering together to him. So then, back in our passage, now we request of you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord and our gathering together to him. That's the rapture being delivered before, it says, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed. That's ultimately what their quest is about, that they wouldn't be shaken or disturbed. You wouldn't be shaken or disturbed. And why? He says here, either by a spirit or a message or a letter, as if from us, to the effect, the day of the Lord has come. That would be a shakeup. You're waiting for him to gather you together. You've been comforted. You're going to be reunited with your families. You're going to be at the Lord forever. And all of a sudden someone says, no, no, you're in the day of the Lord. And you know the order of things. You're going, no, this is troubling. This is not good. You see, they were focused on Christ coming much more than we were. Even so, some had quit their jobs even. They were very focused on Christ. Okay? And so false teachers came along and twisted that focus, as we're going to see, to disturb them. So notice he says, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Now, we need to understand what the day of the Lord is, because if you have the church taken away and then the day of the Lord, if the day of the Lord has come, then that means this didn't happen. You see? So we got to understand what the day of the Lord is. So then what is the day of the Lord? Well, simply put, the day of the Lord is God's direct judgment upon the world. It is Yahweh's day, the Lord's day. You see, man is having his day right now. Man is getting away with sin left and right, and God's patient and willing to neither perish. But there's a day when they will not get away with it anymore, where God will directly intervene with his wrath. Now, he has some other purposes, such as purging Israel to save them. But the day of the Lord is Yahweh's day, bringing wrath upon those who have rejected him. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. Now, 2 Peter is going to talk about Jewish mockers that say, hey, where's the promise of his coming? But Peter's going to use that as an occasion to share God's word is faithful and God is patient. He's not willing for any to perish, but that day will come. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 3. 
Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust. That's what's really going on. And saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, knows they're Jewish. Fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. It's all just going on and on. Nothing has changed. Where is it? Now notice what he says here, verse 5. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. He's saying it escapes their notice when God said something, he did it, like create the universe. You know, So when he says something, it's going to happen. It escapes their notice, right? They're claiming to be Jews. They believe supposedly in the beginning God created, but it escapes their notice. But verse 7, But the present heavens and earth by his word are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment, and look, notice this, destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that what the Lord one day is as, not equal to, but as, a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but patient towards you, not wanting any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God is delaying, in a sense. He has not come yet for judgment. There is a judgment day. It is God's direct judgment here on the earth, the day of the Lord. And notice even verse 10 of chapter 3 of Second Peter, but the day of the Lord will come. It will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with the roar, the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. God is angry at sin. So angry he's going to do this, but there is an out for mankind if you're willing to humble yourself and admit your pride and sinfulness. It's Jesus Christ who died for your sins. You've got to repent. You've got to change your mind and turn to Christ. Turn to Christ from your sin. Take a look at Isaiah chapter 13 because we have the day of the Lord. Now what's interesting, in the Old Testament, we don't see the rapture, the coming of the Lord, because that's a church thing. The church was a mystery, Paul says, that was revealed after the Jews had rejected Christ. And so we do see in the Old Testament the coming of the Lord and the day of the Lord. We see that. Isaiah 13, verse 6. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will fall limp and every man's heart will melt and they will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look at one another in astonishment, their faces aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger to make the land a desolation. And he will exterminate its sinners from it. That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? That's the day of the Lord. He says here, For the stars of heaven and the constellations will not flash their light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shed its light. Thus, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. People say, why does God allow so much evil? Well, if he didn't allow it right now, no one would get saved. He would have to part his wrath like this right now. But instead, he is patient, not willing for any to perish. So he allows evil and even turns it for good while he is saving people from their wickedness to be delivered unto Christ. Look at Zephaniah chapter 
1. Zephaniah. Now, if you knew these scriptures, you'd be going, wow, has this come upon us? Paul said so. There was a letter from him. We missed the rapture. And this is happening now? That's what's going on with us? Shaken up, right? That's what was happening. But that's not the truth. False teachers were doing that. Zephaniah 1.14, near is the great day of the Lord. Near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. In it the warrior cries out for battle. A day of wrath is that day. A day of trouble and distress. A day of destruction and desolation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. And I will bring distress upon men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. And their blood will be poured out like dust. Their flesh will be like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath. That's the day of the Lord. And all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy, for he will make a complete end, even a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. Now, we're going to be delivered from that. We're going to be delivered. But there were bad guys saying, hey, you've entered into that Thessalonians. And they were shaken up. You missed the gathering. You're in this. You're in the day of the Lord. That's what this is. And Paul says, hey, I need to straighten this out so you guys don't get shaken up. Jesus speaks about it in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25. Let me share from the book of Luke. Turn to Luke chapter 17, verse 24. For just as lightning, when it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines to another part, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But he first must suffer many things and then be rejected by this generation. And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it shall be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark and the flood came upon and destroyed them all. It was the same and happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be the same on the day the Son of Man is revealed. It's the day of the Lord. You see, the reality is there's a day of the Lord. We see it in 1 Thessalonians 5. Now as to times and epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well the day of the Lord will come. See, Paul had told them and they knew it. Okay, it will come just as a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like birth pangs upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. And these Thessalonians thinking, we're going to go through that? God promised us we weren't. But now the Word's saying we are, that we're in it right now. Folks, the reality is God is very upset at sin. He's upset at sin, so upset that he had his own son die for our sins. So you're not going to get away with anything. Your arrogance and pride, your wickedness, your unbelief, you're not going to get away with it. But God is patient. He's patient, but those who reject him, he's going to pour out his wrath. And then also on this world, there will be a day when he pours out his wrath and takes back what is his. You see, God is patient, but that day will come. It hasn't come yet. He is unwilling that any should perish. So repent of your sin before it's too late. God is calling upon all men everywhere that they should repent because he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world through the man, Jesus, having furnished proof by raising him from the dead.
So how does the day of the Lord fit into end times? And I gave you a, another outline there with your outline. If you didn't get one, you can pick one up on the way out. It's next to the outlines. I'm going to just briefly share an end times overview so you can see where these pieces fit together because we're going to be talking about that for the next few weeks. So I just want to share this briefly and then we'll close out with what's left in our passage, okay? So then, the first thing on God's prophetic clock is what we have already read about, our gathering together to Him, where believers are raptured up to be with the Lord. This is the event I shared about, where the spirits of those who are dead in Christ are reunited with their bodies, they're resurrected, and we who are alive and remain will be changed, and we will be caught up in the air to meet the Lord in the air, and we will be with Him forever. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. We see it in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 4, and John 14, as I've read those latter two passages already. Now, I believe during this time, while we are in heaven, the church in heaven, we were judged for our works done in the body. That's the Bema Seat of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 8 through 10. Not for sin, but judged for reward or lack of reward. Romans 14, 10 through 12, every tongue will give an account, even believers. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we're going to give an account. Those three passages reveal that. But I believe at this time also we will be experiencing the marriage of the Lamb. Not the marriage supper, but the marriage of the Lamb. Revelation 19, 7 through 9, where the bride is with the husband. It's that picture. You know, in a Jewish marriage, the bride gets ready, 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 and the husband can come any time, but they don't know. And all of a sudden the announcement, the husband's coming, da-da! You know, that's what's going to happen when he comes for us. What a glorious time in heaven we will experience with Christ. But the events on earth at this time will be much different. You see, because we will see at this point God's plan goes back to Israel in Daniel's 70th week. It's the last seven years. And we'll talk about Daniel next time. It's where we're going to have a tribulation, a tribulation that the world has never seen. The first three and a half years of tribulation, the second three and a half, the great tribulation. You can look at it in Matthew 24. You can see it in Daniel chapter 9. It's a seven-year tribulation which begins with a covenant being made by the Antichrist. And then that covenant is broken in the midpoint of the tribulation where he will declare himself to be God. And we're going to see that in our passage. And during this tribulation, it's a time that the world has never seen of tribulation. It's the day of the Lord. And even the Lord said, unless those days were cut short, no flesh would have remained. You don't want to be in the day of the Lord. Now, guess what? If you reject Christ and Christ comes for us today, you go right into that. And guess what? You're going to have a deluding influence and you're not going to come to faith so that you'll be judged. So you better repent now. We're going to see that in our passage. So then, the tribulation is the day of the Lord culminating with Christ coming to take back what is rightfully his. Zephaniah, Isaiah, we read it. Jeremiah 30, Ezekiel, Zechariah, Luke 17, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 Thessalonians 1 and part of 2 here. 2 Peter 3, the day of the Lord. It's the time of Jacob's trouble. Daniel 9, Jeremiah 37, Romans 11. The last three and a half years being the great tribulation where God will allow the Antichrist to purge believers. They're going to be purged. There's going to be great suffering at that point, those who come to faith during the tribulation. And two-thirds of Israel will be slaughtered at that point. One-third will remain and be left. Zechariah 13 and 14. And at the end of this seven-year tribulation, Christ will personally come. That's the day of the Lord. He'll personally come, plant his feet on the Mount of Olives. He will come with his saints on that day. And he will battle. 
as we see in Armageddon, he will destroy his enemies and save all Israel. Ezekiel 34, 36-39, Jeremiah 30, Joel 3, Zechariah 12 and 14, Romans 11, Revelation 19. At that point, after the tribulation, Satan will be bound for a thousand years. That's the millennium. And we will have the resurrection of the tribulation and Old Testament saints, Daniel 12, 2, Revelation 20, 1 through 4. And then we have the millennial kingdom, Christ's thousand year reign on earth after he has separated the sheep and the goats. And it will be just believers that go into the millennium with all of Israel being saved. And yet people will be born during that time, human beings, and there will be those who actually do not believe, who are born to believers. And Satan will be released for a short time, Revelation chapter 20. And he will deceive the nations, and they will come out to the camp of the saints, and fire from heaven will destroy them. And then we see in Revelation 21, there's a new heavens and a new earth, because the other one has fled away, what God spoke about in Second Peter. He's going to destroy the present heavens and earth and create a new one. But before that happens, he's going to judge everyone who rejected him, the great white throne judgment. And if your name is not in the Lance Book of Life, you will be thrown into the lake of fire. And the way your name is in the Lance Book of Life is if you overcome, and the way you overcome is through faith in Jesus Christ. And then we have the eternal state, Revelation 21 and 22. No more tears, no more sorrow, where Christ makes all things new. New heavens, new earth, where righteousness dwells, where Christ himself will dwell in the midst of his saints forever and ever. That's what we look forward to. ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.